0: Truly, we're in a race
1: to make value work.
2: Welcome to season one of the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. Dr. Clasco, I'm also thinking about as we begin re-architecting healthcare and what that looks like. You know, we've talked about the countless forces of technology from mobile phones, cloud, artificial intelligence, and everything really driving and coalescing into this movement towards health assurance. But I keep thinking about the industry as you describe it. It's so heavily regulated and massively subsidized and full of all these structural distortions where it doesn't seem like consumerism really drives change like it does in other industries. Now in this era of social media and digital everything, we demand that every other industry serves consumers better, but consumers haven't yet demanded that of healthcare in the years past. And it seems like now we're starting to unleash consumerism in healthcare in a way, maybe we haven't before, you know, through what Livongo has done, or maybe, you know, patients accessing telehealth during the pandemic and then realizing there's a better way. I just think about as you define health assurance in the manifesto about every person must get continuous real-time data. You know, I want to land on this issue of consumerism as it relates to democratization of data. And what do you think needs to take place in our health system to deliver on the promise of a unified patient record? Will the unintended consequences of HIPAA requirements and EHR vendor data blocking be strong enough forces to hold us back? And will Fire interoperability and Blue Button 2.0 be enough to support the necessary level of data activation and liquidity required for health insurance in the future?
0: Well, I think, you know, things like Fire and Blue Button are necessary but not sufficient. So you brought up, I think, two very important points. So one is the whole, you know, when, when do consumers wake up? And I think that's an, that's an incredibly important point. And I think it'll start to happen in segments. Again, you know, I mentioned it'll start with people that don't feel like patients, you know, so let me sort of give you the opposite example. If somebody gets diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, they don't care about anything on the web or anything. They want to go to the best person that's going to give them the best outcomes. They don't care how nice that person is or anything else. The issue of sort of lifestyle chronic conditions or, you know, I need an arthroscopy for my knee. One of the things that consumers have to wake up to is, I wrote an article that consumers have way too much respect for the healthcare system, and I got in trouble for it from my colleagues, but it was true. What I said is, if you have an appointment at 8 o'clock and your doctor shows up to eight, at 8 45, 90% of the time, the patient will say, that's okay, Dr. Clasco, you must have had an emergency. Well, that's probably true 20% of the time. The other 80% of the time, the doctor, you know, was at Grand Rounds or having a conversation or or whatever, doing something else. But they know that the patients will tolerate that. And why do patients tolerate that? Because they assume, well, you know, my doctor must be the best. Well, in in most places, other than very rural places, there there are 20 or 30 really good doctors that can do that. And and you need to not assume that if your doctor isn't working with you, isn't consumer-centric, that you're stuck. I mean, if there's one message I could give to, to consumers out there, it's that I have. I have a friend. I mean, and this always just knocks me out. Who, if he dented his car, would not go where Go, go told him to go. He would. He was. I look. It's my car. I'm going to go to six different places because I want the best. And he had a heart problem. He was going to have heart surgery. And I asked him where it was going, and it was a you know sort of a community hospital in a city where there's like some of the best hospitals in the country. And I said, well, I'm just surprised. Why would you go there? And his answer was, well, that's where my primary care doc told me, so it must be the best. And, and you know, so we have this sort of myth of healthcare care that that's how it is. No, that's probably not because it's the best. It's probably because that's the system that that primary care doctor is in, or that's who primary care doctor plays golf with, etc. So I think one of the things is to recognize that as we get more transparent in healthcare, consumers have to take a greater role in their health care. It always knocks me out when I hear a consumer say, I'll have people call me and say, you know, I went, I went to a doctor, I had somebody just the other day that says, I need this procedure. I'm I'm not sure I need it. You know, could I see one of your doctors, Steve? And I said, Yeah, sure. And you know, it turns out he saw one of our doctors, and my doctor didn't think he needed it. He said, Oh my God, well, how do I tell my doctor that I got a second opinion? I guess I should have the procedure because he wouldn't be happy if I if I told him I got a second opinion. And I just again. Think you know like why do people feel that way? I understand why older folks do so. So I think the answer is going to start with younger folks getting back to pregnant patients. We started a company that's a Match.com for pregnant patients and their obstetricians. Now back in the day when I was a private practice obstetrician, the way it would work is you know Mrs. Jones, 28 years old, normal patient is late for a period. She goes to her 65-year-old male primary care doctor who does a pregnancy test and says. Congratulations, Ms. Jones, you're pregnant. I'm sending you to my obstetrician, Dr. Clasco, that I like to work with. 30 years ago, everybody said, Great. The chances of a 25 or 28-year-old today would say, wait, 65-year-old male, that might be who you'd go to if you ever got pregnant, which you won't. But I'm not just taking your word for it. I'm gonna talk to my friends. I'm gonna go online. So we created a match.com. You know, I'm Mrs. Jones, I live in Brimar, Pennsylvania looking for a predominantly female group within, you know, 15 miles of my house. I'll send you my HIPAA compliant data. I'd like somebody to set my doula. I can only get off from work on Fridays and I have it in the gold and I don't want to spend more than $1,000 of, of, of my deductible. And I'd like to see your quality data. I'd like to see your C-section rate. I'd like to see what other patients say about you. And in essence, doctors will compete for that patient. Now, what's hilarious about that, I go around the country talking about this and half the doctors say, all right, that does it. That's the end of healthcare as we know it. I'm stopping practicing. That's, that's horrible. The other half of the doctors say, hey, that's really, really cool. Where can I sign up? And there's a huge, as you might expect, age and gender difference between A and B. So I think you'll start to see some of those changes. As it relates to data interoperability, look, it's another area where our, our healthcare policymakers and even our, our lobbying groups have been asleep at the wheel. So I'll start with telehealth. Think about this for a second. 30 or 40 years ago, and and it hit me because the World Economic Forum, one of the heads of finance said to me, you know, Steve, 30 years ago, the two sectors that escaped the consumer revolution were banking and healthcare. Now you're alone. I was thinking about the pandemic because 30 years ago, we would have had to have all sorts of restrictions of people lining up on Fridays to deposit their checks. And well, you could only do it every other Friday or you have to get a number because we don't want people, you know, hanging out together. And when you think about that revolution, I don't think you got up this morning if you deposited a check and said, I think I will tell a bank this morning. It's just the banking went from 90% in the bank to 90% at home through a variety of easing up regulations and a variety of technologies and a variety of consumers looking at things differently, right? I mean, my dad, before he died, 90 something when he died, you know, just assumed that you would go to a bank and he would never ever do something at home because he thought his money would be lost. Just like that person thought that, you know, I have to go to this hospital or that hospital. So I think that the banking is sort of a good example. Now, when you think about telehealth, I can practice physically in 48 states. I can only do telehealth in maybe 16 or 20 states because a lot of state medical societies don't want me or Jefferson coming into their state and doing telehealth. So that would be like if you needed a different ATM card. When banking went through their revolution for every state with a different code, it would not have made it. So we need to look at things a little bit differently there. Same thing with data interoperability. That whole situation is ridiculous. And I think that that frankly, even the HIPAA part of it, while it's, it's an important part, the privacy part is an important part, data needs to be interoperable. It is just absolutely crazy that every, most of the data I have to get, I have to get through insurance companies. And by the way, the insurance company won't give me data on my patient, let's say, if they got readmitted to a different hospital because they don't want me to know what what they pay that hospital. So data clearly needs to be freer, needs to be interoperable. My view of the future is that the patient owns her data. The patient owns her chart. And this whole concept of I'm going to move from Dr. Clasco to to Dr. Smith, and I have to go to Dr. Klasko's office and get him to approve moving my records is not even 1990s, that's 1970s. In my model, the patient owns her records, just like you own your financial records. If you're moving from Citibank to Wells Fargo, you don't have to ask Citibank if that's okay. You just get on, you just get a different site. Patient should own her records. She should have a password. If I'm her doctor, she gives me that password. The moment she wants to go to a different doctor, she just changes the password and gives that doctor the password. And then we have sort of some, you know, for lack of a better word, fail-safe passwords for trauma, emergency rooms, et cetera, that are audited. So to me, that's where charts should go. That's where data should go. It should be totally transparent to the patient. As it relates to the sort of interoperability issues of I'm Epic, you're Cerner, I'm all scripts, that's another sort of, in my mind, absurd reality. And one of the companies we're working on with General Catalyst as part of our health assurance is a fire layer company called Commure which really creates a single sign-on that sort of overcomes, if you will, the tyranny of the traditional EMR. EMRs were started as, in essence, financial and business entities and in situations like Epic and Cerner, they have really advanced quite a bit. But the concept of Commure is I can have a single sign-on you know, let's say on Epic, and if I merge with a hospital that's on Cerner, I can still have that single sign-on. And by the way, on my menu bar will be Livongo and Mindstrong and many other companies that I can just go in and out and share data if I need to with another doctor without having to go into a different system. So I think I think Fire and some of the other HL7 things and stuff will make a difference, but again, it'll take it'll take consumers demanding it. It'll create some opening up of interoperability standards. It'll need some enlightened healthcare care policy, and it will need entrepreneurs in the traditional healthcare ecosystem working together in a different way than they have before.
1: Thanks for sharing those views on the democratization of data, Dr. Clasco. It's such a critical piece of the puzzle. I want to dive deeper into another promise of, that these tech-enabled changes will allow, which is that they'll improve the provider experience. And so going back to that example that you used a little earlier of the the patient physical and how it's an antiquated practice that the physical that exists today and you call for that entirely new kind of physical that you state is rich in data deeply rooted in empathy this physical would feed into an emr like this dropbox account that you just told us about and it would take away labyrinthine Billing practices that provide limited use of EMR data in our current environment, it would eliminate challenges we have where data in one system can't be shared with another, as you've just been discussing. I think we can say with confidence that it would also significantly decrease frustration for physicians. A 2019 survey by the National Academy of Medicine found that nearly half of U.S. doctors suffer from extreme burnout, leading to emotional exhaustion, cynicism, loss of enthusiasm and joy in their work as well as increasing detachment from their patients and their patients' needs. Essentially, in our quest for economies of scale and process standardization, hospitals and health systems have become monolithic, rigid, and impersonal, and provider empathy has been sapped. And now we're seeing this with severe results. Physician burnout and moral injury have led to the highest suicide rates among all professions. Can you describe the new experience of health assurance and how does it simplify the lives of doctors? Is this really going to allow us to achieve the quadruple aim?
0: So I think, first of all, we have to look at two significant areas. One is how we choose doctors. We still accept physicians based on science, GPA, med cats, and organic chemistry grades. And somehow we're just amazed doctors are not more empathetic, communicative, and creative. I mean, that's just ridiculous. And again, that was based on a 1970s model that if I could memorize 19 reasons you had a headache and another doctor can only memorize 15. I was a better doctor. Now the 19 are on my supersized iPhone. And pretty soon we'll have an AI instrument, IBM, Watson, Google brain, whatever, that will be much better than any human at those things. So the first thing is to start to select and educate doctors based on self-awareness, empathy, communication skills, and cultural competence. By the way, when you do that, you almost triple diversity in your workforce and you make much, much, much happier doctors. So that that's the first thing. The second thing is starting to really invest more into your current medical staff, we did a study. I had gotten about a million dollar grant a few years ago on what makes doctors different than normal people and how we handle change. And what we found is the way we select and educate docs, we've joined a cult around four biases, a competitive bias, an autonomy bias, a hierarchical bias, and in some respects, a non-creativity bias. And the one that's most interesting is that non-creativity bias, because it's not that we're less creative than anybody else. It's just that we, when we asked entrepreneurs, when we asked people that came on, or most business people, what got you to where you are, creativity was number one or two in 90% of the cases. When we asked doctors, it was always strategy, focus, discipline. And creativity didn't make it in, in, in up to 8% of the cases. So when you think about that, if you believe you're creative and the world around you is changing like it is today, you're going to think it's a real opportunity and you're going to be excited. If you think you're an autonomous, competitive, hierarchical, non-creative creature, you're going to assume that by definition change is bad. So what we've done at Jefferson is invest a fair amount of something we call JOLT, Jefferson Onboarding and Leadership Transformation. And it's basically a, a model where we can take our current potential leaders and really get them through a very, not just rigorous course, but really change some of their cultural thoughts through projects, through coaching, et, et cetera. But some of it is just understanding who you're, who you're going after. We did a study where we looked around the country about 20% of the docs of a medical staff will get it. They'll follow anything you do. About 15% will never get it. And then there's a 65% in the middle. What we found, though, that's interesting is that where we spend our time as leaders, we spend about 40% of our time with the docs that get it because it's comfortable. We like them. They like us. Spend about 45% of our time with docs that will never get it because they're loud and we can cure anybody, and 15% of the time with the folks in the middle. So at Jefferson, we decided that we'll teach the teachers with the folks that get it, and they'll become the mentors, spend a little less time. We'll ignore the folks that will never get it. We call that administrative hospice. We just let them be comfortable and go away. And then we concentrate on the folks in in, in the 65% in the center. And we did an article for Sloan Business Review where we looked at those people that we put through the Jefferson Leadership Academy over the past six years. And the results were pretty astounding as far as loyalty to the organization, willingness to accept leadership positions, how they viewed the world. Basically, they were more creative and we had deprogrammed the cult of healthcare. The practicing changes in a bunch of different ways. One is, once you're sending continuous data, and you're not just seeing six patients an hour taking their blood pressure, et cetera, you you know what what their data has been. You're seeing that patient either for a problem or to counsel her on something based on her data, and you're really using the human time you have with that patient around the human needs of that patient. So you know how's life going? You know how's the pandemic affected you? You know, tell me about you know your children. So you're having those kind of conversations, which get to those social determinants of health, because you've already gotten all the data. You don't need to come close to spending that time. You know what the patient's weight is because they're stepping on the scale every day. By the way, you know if you take some of like congestive heart failure and some of those kind of chronic diseases, you know in congestive heart failure, we we get worried that they're getting worse if their weight jumps up. Well, we still have people come to the office in some respects every couple of times a week to get their weight check. Well, that's ridiculous when you can step on a scale every day and have that have that come in. I think the other thing that will change a lot is the whole concept of physical is ridiculous for another reason. So like the only thing that matters is from my neck down, just, just the word physical. It's okay. So I only care about, you know, your physical status. I don't care about your brain. I don't care about your emotional, social, or spiritual needs. I'm just going to check everything from the waist down in your organs. So beyond the fact that it's a single point in time, beyond the fact that it's data-driven and not human-driven, we also have to make sure that there's a lot more about social, emotional, spiritual, and mental brain health issues that are involved when humans are seeing a person.
2: So, Dr. Clasco, as the chief executive officer for one of the top health systems in the country, I know you have a really unique perspective on the future of hospitals. And some would say your business thesis regarding economies of unscale would be a radical position. When I was reading your manifesto, I was reminded of the movie Jerry Maguire, where Tom Cruise's character, after experiencing a a crisis of conscience, he writes a 25-page manifesto. Titled The Things We Think and Do Not Say, The Future of Our Business. And that led him to on a new journey to build a company really based on the hard truths that he learned while working in an industry that was entirely broken. And the scenario depicted in that movie reminded me of what your co author, Haymont, describes in your book as Clasco's Conundrum. And he describes how Jefferson. One of the fastest growing academic medical centers in the nation as it expanded from three to 14 hospitals in the last few years and through these six mergers and acquisitions he describes how you had to do this in a broken fee for service world to really merge operations so that you can become an an essential asset for the community, however. In the next few years, as the industry moves to value and health assurance and care becomes more virtualized and procedures shift more and more into the ambulatory setting, you're going to have to completely unscale so that Jefferson can turn into that vision of healthcare with no address. So this balancing act between scaling and unscaling, I wanted you to expound upon that a little bit more today for our listeners. Can you describe how you see the role of the hospital changing where it's no longer at the pinnacle of care, but instead a provider on the continuum? And how are you managing this difficult task of scaling up Jefferson to survive now so it can be in a better position to unscale later?
0: That's probably the thing that keeps me up at night the most. And by the way, not sure I want to go the route Jerry Maguire did because I don't think it worked out all that great for him. So I I think the simplest answer is you have to take a long-term approach, right? You know, it's a little bit like I was saying with Steve Jobs and when Jobs came out with uh, that thing holding 200 MP3s, the stock went down by 15 or 20%. You're, you're building this company around an MP3 player. That's crazy. So the, the, the corollary to that would be when we started telehealth and we came up with that sort of model where we could you know, get 50% of our patients out of our expensive and efficient ED. And I realized that we would go bankrupt if we really did that under the current insurance model. So what we did is we started with our employees. We have 32,000 employees and we had just gotten a new uh, plan administrator and we said, let's do this. Let's tell people that if they just come for our employees, if they, since we're self-insured, if they just come to our, our acute care emergency room, it'll be a $500 deductible. If they go through Connect and we send them to the emergency room, it'll be a zero deductible. And lo and behold, we found that it was incredibly successful. We were able to get, you know, a certain percentage of our patients that would have gone to the ED, out of the ED, We were able to have a much higher patient satisfaction by taking care of them through urgent care or through telehealth or through an appointment the next day. And we saved money for the system because, in this case, we were the insurer, we were the the employer, and we're the provider. So I think that uh, Lubango was very similar. At the very beginning, we couldn't get our insurers to buy into that. And it really didn't make a whole lot of sense for us. Because the whole idea of Robongo is you won't have to see your primary care doc as much, you won't have to go to the ED as much, you won't have to be hospitalized as much, all good things, all things that would save the insurer a lot of money, all things that were antithetical to how we make money. So again, we did that with our employees and with some of our value-based deals where we had more of a percentage of premium. When it comes to the more radical disruptions, the way I look at it, there are some things that I'm going to have to eat for lack of a better word, current operating margin to A, do the right thing. We have three values, put people first, do the right thing and, and be bold and think different. And, you know, just to get to the COVID crisis, we could have lost a lot less money through the COVID crisis if we hadn't done those three things, but we have one of the lowest employee effectivity rates in the country. So we, we, made, we made decisions around those values that cost us a, a lot of money, but were the right decisions. We also did a joint venture with Aramark, to actually take uh, Aramark, one of the largest facility companies in the world, and partner with Jefferson around safety. So we took our expertise in safety and created a startup company with Aramark called Eversafe. So we took that sort of long-term mentality into our short-term thinking. But the simple fact is there's only two choices. Like I said, you're, you're, you're either Sears, Penny's, Macy's, saying, I'm going to eke out my people coming to my store margin as long as I can. And then hopefully at the point that it becomes untenable, there'll be a new CEO. Or you can convince your board that there's a long-term play here that, you know, Jefferson's 195 years old. We plan to be another 195 years old. And while it might affect our short-term P&L, we're going to be ahead of the system in the Amazon moment. And, And do it in a way. And frankly, you know, we, we still do have to make some some decisions where unscaling too quick would cause some some pretty major issues. So it is an absolute balancing act that affects a lot of our employees, that affects a lot of the senior managers, that affects how we get paid, but that starts the model of stopping to think about our major two drivers, our in-person student enrollment and people being admitted to the hospital. Those are not our our two major, either financial or operational drivers.
1: So Dr. Clasco, similar to what you just described, the future role of hospitals, let's talk about the commensurate shift that you've been alluding to earlier as well, which is on the payer slash insurance side of the equation. Your vision calls for an industry where normal economics are at play. But the current model of insurance really gets in the way of how consumer markets are supposed to work. In most market sectors, the consumer is the one who decides what to buy, the consumer is the one who pays for it, and then also the one who ultimately benefits from it. But in healthcare, who decides who pays and who benefits are all different. And the insurers have also expanded their purpose far beyond insurance and are in the middle of many services that could be consumer driven. And you asked the question, how do we enable risk takers and technology and healthcare to partner and create a transformative approach to lifelong health care for all? And so what do you think will be the role of insurance companies in answering that question for the future of health assurance? And how do you think we'll get there? Will the insurance companies be creating subsidiaries and be part of this innovative solutions? Will they be divesting or unscaling services as well? Uh, You know, because new entrants are offering better services and products.
0: Well, look, I think we have, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, you can't start to cure your uh, alcoholism till you basically say, you know, maybe I'm drinking too much. So the first thing we have to recognize is that there's no system on the planet that would have these kind of headlines on the same day. You know, Mayo Clinic furloughs cuts hours of 30,000 employees to help upset $3 billion in pandemic losses. COVID-19 pushes Cleveland Clinic to $40 million operating loss in quarter one. AHA report hospital financial losses from COVID-19 expected to top $323 billion in, in 2020. And then the same day, Anthem up 14.9%, 2.3 billion dollar profit. Cigna up 24.6%, 1.8 billion dollar profit. Centene 100% profit increase. United Healthcare 100% profit increase. So, so the first thing we have to do is diagnose the fact that the concept of medical loss ratios is antithetical to any kind of efficient system. How much can I get from the employers? based on what I think I'm gonna pay out next year and how little do I have to actually pay out. That's actually how those folks profit gets done. So that makes no sense. And then you then you start to look at it from the consumer perspective, where it's, you know, again, if you were gonna come up with a more bizarre system to your point, you couldn't come up with a more bizarre system. It works like this. I work in a place, you know, I have healthcare needs. I have a doctor. I'm not gonna really have anything to say about what my quote insurance plan is that will that will determine how I, I do my healthcare. My employer is gonna do that, okay. So that's a little a bit bizarre to start with. And then I'm gonna see my doctor for something and maybe need some surgery. And I'm not gonna ask what it costs because it doesn't matter to me at all. He's gonna do the, he or she's gonna do the surgery. And then like about two weeks later, I'm gonna get a ridiculous 27 page thing with a number that looks astronomical. Although I notice at the top of it, it says, this is not a bill. So why the heck did you send it to me? And then another two weeks after that, I'm gonna get a bill, not from my doctor, but from my insurer. And again, you know, and so another bill from my insurer, from my doctor, there's really just no logic to the system. So I think the issue for insurers is again, Unless we're really doomed, the model of you know I'm the middleman between the payer, provider, and employer, and that's my job, and that's where I'm going to make a lot of money is wrong. And I think there will be a number of ways to solve that. One will be a situation like United Healthcare, where they create the subsidiary called Optum, which now is one of the largest healthcare providers in the country, does a lot around digital transformation a lot around other kinds of primary care and and changing consumer uh, behavior, but where that was like a, a subsidiary, you know, it's gone from you know the dog wagging the tail to the tail wagging the dog to the tail that ate the dog. Optum is is a good part of that 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 future, and I think you're seeing that with the merger of CVS and Aetna, and and several other things. Then I think you'll start to see more strategically aligned payer-provider partnerships. Uh, on the one hand, you have things like UPMC and Kaiser and Intermountain, but I think even even with some of the Blues plans, you're starting to see more real real partnerships between the Blues plans and large providers like Oxner, Louisiana Blue and some of those other other situations. So I think I think the, the answer is that I believe that if we're going to avoid a Medicare for all, the only way to avoid a Medicare for all is to really make it really easy to have strategically aligned payer provider alliances where where I'm participating in the percentage of premium, we are both incented to take care of everybody, to look at the social determinants, to provide the best access, user experience, quality at the lowest cost. And that it's not an either or, that if I do that, then the insurer's doing great and I'm doing bad. Or if I don't do that, then the insurer's taking the brunt of it and I'm doing fine. That the whole fee-for-service model has to fundamentally change.
2: So, Dr. Kalasko, I have to ask you this question about the future of medical science. And, you know, you've described a future where health and medicine come together. We pay everyone on value. We forge creative partnerships between health leaders and entrepreneurs. We establish secure connectivity. We share data with patients and all the innovation that comes about. But I mean, hearing you speak about the fourth industrial revolution and all of the different technologies between AI and the Internet of Things and 5G and 3D printing and robotics, I think about where this takes us into the diagnostic realm. And I'd like to ask you about how Industry 4.0 will merge with and align with advances in biotechnology where we could unlock the medical benefits of human genomic mapping. And as we think about the future of medicine, can you provide our listeners with some of your insights about how technology innovation will continue to Advance into the diagnostic realm, and what are your thoughts about maybe like the gene editing possibilities of CRISPR? And do you think we'll ever be able to get past our current understanding of the human genome to really unleash the the full understanding of the proteome and advance medical science even further?
0: The answer is yes, yes, and yes when it comes to research. I think one of the things to recognize is getting back to the technology example, we always think literally, there's there a great quote, I think from Ellison from Oracle, that we tend to overestimate technology short-term and underestimate in, in, in the long-term. So you know if you just think about the computer industry, if you had gone in 2002, what do you think things will be like in 2020? People would talk about we'll have cooler laptops and Windows 2020, You know nobody predicted those kind of things. So I think the same thing is true in medical advances. The answer about CRISPR and gene editing is yes, yes and yes. In our situation, we're very excited about something we call the Jefferson Institute for Bioprocessing, which really came as a partnership with the National Institute for Bioprocessing Research and Technology in Ireland. But that's working with companies like J&J and Merck and that kind of thing to do some of those high throughput type bioprocessing advances so that both diagnostics and treatments can come to market significantly earlier. We have a vaccine center, and I think this is not the last pandemic, and I think you'll see some major advances in that. I think the the advance on the diagnostic side that i'm most excited about is in the area of oncology and infectious diseases cell free DNA testing, so if you think about infectious diseases, you know, we still have a model where somebody's in the hospital, they have a fever, we do a blood culture, it might take, you know, a certain amount of time for that blood culture to, by the time we find out exactly, and we're giving that person broad spectrum antibiotics and all those kinds of things, by the time we find out what it really is, that they might've really been in shock and gone downhill. There are cell-free DNA technologies now that literally we can get a blood test and see two or three, you know, very small amount of bacteria and be able to this and put them on antibiotics right away. Interestingly, the same thing is true couple companies, Thrive, Grail, and others, they're doing cell-free DNA for oncology. And as part of your, quote, physical, you know, you might have no symptoms. You might have nothing that would show up in a in an imaging thing, but you might get one of these tests and say, you know what, you have a small amount of cancer cells. Now, the problem in the 1.0 in these kind of things is I don't really want to have a physical that says I might have a small amount of cancer cells and not know where they are and not know what to do about it. <laughs> so I think that the the ability to sort of hone down these amazing technologies, I think will, will be, and then this is what we can do about it will be the next step. And then finally, on the genome side, I think we just start to see a whole lot of work on is, I see the future being, we're working with a company called Color Genomics, and the concept will be that at the point that a baby is born, we will get their umbilical cord stem cells or the umbilical cord cells, we'll, we'll get a full genome on them, we'll send them to a company like Color, They'll tell us what those babies' risks are, but more importantly, you'll have a subscription service that throughout that baby's life, from baby to toddler to, to adolescent to adult, that constantly any new advances on what that subtyping gives you risk for and what you can do about it will get told. So literally, you'll have a constant technology ability to know that, boy, I'm at higher risk for type 2 diabetes, so this is what I can do while I'm 25 or I'm higher risk for Alzheimer's uh, based on uh, a new study on my uh, subtype. And this is what I can do about it. So that, to me, that's where the real exciting issues are.
1: This has been such a great conversation talking about health assurance today. Thank you, Dr. Clasco. I'll sort of leave you with one quote, and it's actually from the NBA.
0: Jason Kibb got brought into the Dallas Mavericks, and they were, uh, I think, 24, and 52 the year before. And he said at the press conference, I'm gonna turn this team around 360 degrees. We do a lot of turning things around 360 degrees in healthcare. I'm excited about working with lots of other innovators and disruptors like Haymon and other people in the traditional healthcare ecosystem to really start that, that true transformation. So thanks for the, for the time and the opportunity to talk.
2: Thanks Dr. Klaska for joining us today on the Race to Value. We really uh, enjoyed our time together today.
0: Thanks, take care.